Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today I'm speaking with Lamia H. Lamia is the author of a brand new book called Hijab Butch Blues. The book is a bold and beautiful memoir about Lamia's coming of age into their own as a queer, brown, Muslim immigrant. I loved this book so much. And I knew when I finished, I just had to have Lamia on the podcast. And so now here they are. Lamia's work has been published in places like Salon and the Los Angeles Review of Books. And today on the show, Lamia tells me why they chose to write under a pseudonym, how using prophets and figures from the Quran enhanced their ability to tell this story, and how they see the relationship between religion and justice. Remember, our February book club selection is The Roundhouse by Louise Erdrich. We will be joined by Mina Kimes to discuss this book on February 22nd. Everything we talk about on each episode of the podcast can be found in the link in the show notes. If you love the show and you want more of it, please go to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the stacks pack. I could not make this show without the support of the stacks pack. And for just $5 a month, you get bonus episodes, our virtual book club, access to our discord, which is very much the place to be if you love books. Plus, you get to know that your contribution makes it possible for this podcast to exist every single week. To join, head to patreon.com slash the stacks. And now a special thank you to some of our newest members of the Stacks Pack, Katie Stringham, Ashley Irvin, A. Booth Kinlaw, Martha Francis Goodman, Tracy Clement, Livia, Angela Banks-Adams, and Kate Matson. Okay, one last thing before we dive into the episode. If you could take one moment to make sure you are subscribed to this podcast wherever you are listening right now and leave us a rating and a review. Five stars goes a long way to helping get this show in front of new audiences and building the Stacks community. I always forget to ask you guys about doing this, but I know that I'm supposed to. So I'm trying to be a better person in 2023 and ask for what I need. So please leave the Stacks a rating and a review, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Okay, now it's time for my conversation with Lamia H. All right, everybody. I am so excited. I'm joined today by Lamia H. They are a brand new debut author. Their memoir is called Hijab Butch Blues. And I don't like to make huge pronouncements early in the year, but I have a feeling this book is going to be something that a lot of people are talking about for the whole year and beyond. So Lamia, welcome to the Stacks. Thank you. Wow, it's January. So thank you for saying that. Um, <laughs> well, I don't know. Sometimes I read a book and I'm just like, yeah, this is gonna this is gonna resonate with people. People are gonna be interested and curious and excited. And I just feel like your book is one of those books. And you know, I don't know. I don't have any say. They don't let me vote for Pulitzers or anything like that. So it's just my opinion. <laughs> I don't know why they don't. They should. I agree firmly. Um, Will you, in sort of 30 seconds or so, just tell folks what this book is about? Yeah. So this book is a memoir. uh, Like you mentioned, it's called Hijab Butch Blues. In the book, what I do is I retell stories from the Quran as queer brown immigrant narratives uh, alongside stories from my own queer brown immigrant life. What What I'm trying to do is I'm really trying to rethink of figures and prophets from the Quran as um, these flawed, messy, and deeply human characters. 
as people who sometimes make good decisions and sometimes make bad decisions and who find themselves in weird situations, you know, instead of being perfect goody two-shoe saints. Yeah. And I use these stories as starting points to reflect on my own life, um, on, you know, the situations that I've found myself in as someone who's queer, as someone who's non-binary, as someone who wears hijab and who is visibly Muslim, um, and uh, as someone who, you know, was born in South Asia and grew up in an Arab country and has now lived in the U.S. for the past 19 years now. I love the framework of using these prophets and figures from the Quran in, in your book. I think it is, sometimes I think when authors use like, I don't know, stru- like these structures where they try to do a lot, it it takes away from the story. But in this case, I thought it enhanced. I felt like I understood you better mm. in knowing about the figures that you were that you were pulling from in each chapter. And I felt like I understood them better as I got to know you. And mm. I think that's really hard to do. But I just I loved the the kind of conceit of the book. And I'm wondering how that idea came to you. That's a great question. Um, so, you know, I've, I grew up with stories of these prophets and figures. Um, and I've just been hearing them in different variations for so long my whole life. And when I started hearing these stories as like a four or five year old, um, they would be very bare bones and very um, sort of like short and pithy. And as I grew older, the stories uh, got more complex. And especially as I started reading the Quran for myself, um, they, the stories got more complex and I learned more about things. And I, you know, I've always been a really big reader. And uh, in reading, um, I'm always thinking through what the characters in books are doing and thinking through their decisions and, you know, um, thinking through what must be going through their heads. And so it felt really natural to me to do the same with these stories from the Quran um, and to really sort of like think of these figures as like characters in a text who also have, you know, internal narration and who are making difficult decisions and have conflict and are thinking through things in their head. So in some ways, I've sort of like always seen these figures as um, complicated and messy and, you know, human. But the way that this conception really came around was um, a few years ago when I went to uh I found myself, me and my partner found ourselves going um, to visit my family for Eid and I wasn't out to my family and uh, I was taking my partner along as a friend and I was thinking through the act of doing that and how hard it was and really thinking about the story of how this Eid came about. Um, the, the the story is that Ibrahim, who is this prophet, um, who's also known as Abraham, has has this person who is sort of like offered to him by his wife um, in, it's unclear in what situation, um, her name is Hajar and he has a child with her, Ismail, and his wife, Sarah, gets gets jealous. And so he's asked, uh, Ibrahim uh, exiles Hajar and Ismail to the middle of the desert. And I was thinking through a lot about Hajar because the Eid celebrates sort of like the story of Ibrahim, Ismail, and Hajar. And later on, um, Ibrahim is asked to sacrifice Ismail. And Hajar is just, you know, supposed to be this character who's just standing there and just like allowing this to happen, that uh, this person who she has a kid with is going to kill her kid. And so I was thinking a lot about sort of like sacrifice and rage and anger and exile and what it must have been like for Hajar in all of these situations. Uh, because it was Eid and that story was sort of like omnipresent. And I was thinking a lot about the situation that me and my partner were finding ourselves in too, where we were going to see my family who I love deeply and who I have this like complicated relationship with where I love them deeply, but I'm not out to them. Um, And I was thinking through all of the sort of like sacrifices involved in that. Um, Mm. And that's sort of where the idea came to me uh, through the parallels. Um, And also because I'm a person who, because I'm someone who reads a lot, I also um, end up writing a lot. And when something, when something feels difficult to me, and it's something that I'm thinking through, and I'm trying to tease apart, like, why something is making me feel weird or uh, or upset or just like uncomfortable, um, what I tend to do is I tend to write about it. So I found myself writing about the story of Hajar and I found myself writing about 
myself and notice the parallels. Um, and one of the essays in this book, um, the one titled Hajar, actually comes from that. Um, it's towards the end of the book, but it's one of the first essays that I wrote. And once I wrote that, I found that there were so many other stories that I wanted to tell, so many other parallels that I wanted to draw. And honestly, so many other things that I wanted to think through that, you know, had always been on my mind um, that I wanted to think through through the lens of the Quran. Mm, I love I love that. I love that that was one of the earliest essays that you wrote because it does come so late in right. the book, which is just interesting to think about now, kind of knowing the story. But that sort of was my next question, which is how did the book come together? Did you have to add or drop figures like as you were coming through where you're like, oh, you know what? Mm. I need one about Miriam. Like I can't do it without this this piece. And she wasn't in there originally. So you added her in or, or vice versa or someone that you had that you were like, uh-uh, this isn't working. Mm. I don't think I dropped anyone, but I did add the last essay in the book, uh, which is the story of Eunice. So I I wrote the chapters sort of uh, separately, but they all sort of speak to each other and came together as a book once I had done writing them all. And when I when I wrote the whole thing, um, my editor read it and was like, hey, um, Lamia, you actually never address why you write under a pseudonym. And so she suggested thinking through an essay about that. And as mm -hmm. I was thinking through, um, it came to me this, uh, this, this parallel of uh, Eunice, who is a prophet who's also known as Jonah. Um, his story uh, came to me. Um, so Jonah is a, this prophet who preaches to his people and none of them are listening to him. And so he's like, deuces, I'm out. And so he gets on the ship and he leaves them. And he, and there's this, there's this big storm and so they draw lots and he loses at lots and he's supposed to sort of jump off the ship because the ship is too heavy to weather the storm being uh, without someone ha having to jump off. And I hope this isn't a spoiler because I feel like this is a pretty like no, commonly known story. No, this is Jonah and the Whale. It's People Jonah know Jonah and the Whale. Okay, it's Jonah yeah. and the Whale. No, I feel like the spoilers would be like parts of your life Got but it. not parts of the like Quran, okay, okay. Bible, Hebrew Great. scripture. I feel like that's like People are familiar. I, I think so, too. So um, so Jonah jumps off the ship and he gets swallowed by a whale. Um, and to me, that story has always been about Jonah giving up. But in talking mm. to my friend, it made me realize how much actually the story is more about Jonah being like, like sort of like having boundaries. Um, yeah, healthy boundary Jonah. Yeah, healthy boundary Jonah. Um, and so I really, I really sort of started to think of this whale as protection instead of punishment. So I couldn't help but draw the parallels between that and writing under a pseudonym. You know, there's this way in which it's easy to see a pseudonym as to see writing under a pseudonym is kind of like tragic. Like, oh, how sad that I can't, you know, tell the story as my uh, you know, real life persona. But actually, to me, it's a way of having boundaries. And it's a way of protecting myself, you know, possibly just for the time being. But you know, it's a way for me to be like, this is what I want to do. This is how I want to do it in ways that make me feel um, safe and comfortable, and allow me to be really honest. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a story that definitely came about after I was done writing most of the other uh, chapters in the book. Do you ever write in your, like, I know this book is published in your pseudonym, but do you ever publish things in your other name? What do you call it? Your real name? Is yeah, that right? your I real guess, name? Yeah. <laughs> um, I do, but, uh, I, you know, actually, it, it's really funny. I um, I actually have another pseudonym that I used to write okay. about uh, <laughs> sort of like work stuff. Um, I work in a okay. field that's really uh, white man dominated. And so okay. I write a lot about uh, what it's like to work in that field. So I've used a pseudonym to write under that, to write about that. Um, and then I've also written stuff under my real name. Um, but those have been um, more sort of like research slash academic articles as opposed to really sharing a lot about myself. Um, no one told me that writing a memoir would feel so vulnerable once you were done writing mm. it and it was going out into the world. So in some ways, I'm really grateful that, you know, uh, the people that I work with can't look up my memoir. Okay, this is a very me question. 
And I'll just preface this by saying I'm a Leo in case this informs anything about me to you. Do you ever feel like when you write in a pseudonym Mm -hmm. and people love it or hate it that you're like, I want to own it so bad so I can like clap back at people or like collect my flowers? Or are you comfortable just being like the work is in the world and I can have my own private feelings about it, but I can never attach myself to it publicly? Um. You know, there are there are a lot of things that make me sad about writing under a pseudonym, but this isn't really one of them. Um, <laughs> I mean, like one of the things. So you're healthy and well adjusted, and not a crazy person who's egomaniacal. Okay, great. You know, uh, hard disagree, but um, no. I mean, like some of the things that make me really sad are just um, not being able to like name my friends in the acknowledgments. Like that makes me really mm. sad. Um, thank you, all of my friends who are really lovely and who I wish I could have named by name as opposed to by initials. Um, uh, and then I'm also just like really sad that I didn't get to make more pointed critiques of uh, the place where I grew up um, or, mm. you know, the Islamic center that I go to. Um, yeah, but I guess like attaching my real life persona to uh, this work that I do isn't really one of them. I think most of the people who I surround myself, uh, my with in real life know of my pseudonym and then it it kind of like I think it ends up being a, a boundary thing too where it makes me less likely to uh, go out and try to figure out what other people think of my work because mm. because like in some ways I can't right right are there things that you feel like are freeing for you mm. or like that you've gained that you gain from writing in a pseudonym besides what you said, you know, before about just being able to like put the story out there, but are there other things that are like, feel really positive to you about doing this? Mm. Um, I definitely feel like I can be a level of honest and vulnerable that I wouldn't have been able to be without using Mm -hmm. a pseudonym. I think that's been the most freeing thing, um, I would say. Okay, back back to the book itself, though. I This conversation is very interesting because also the other thing is that for people who are listening and you'll see this on the Stacks Instagram is that Lamia also doesn't obviously show their face in, in any of like on the cover of the book. Uh, it's sort of like a profile. I don't even know if that's you, but it's sort of like a profile hidden, you know, glimpse mm-hmm. and then also on social media and things. And so there's this sort of like privacy mystique about you that is very, you know, titillating, if you will. (laughs) But back to the book, I want to talk about your interpretation of scripture because I am, well, I should say this, you don't know me, but I'm I'm not religious at all. I Mm. did go to Catholic high school. My mother is Jewish. So I sort of have this like weird, you know, I know a little bit here and there, but I also like don't practice in any way. Mm. And so it's not really a part of my life as an adult. That being said, one of the things that happens to me when I read scripture, and this has been true for my entire life, The moment I start reading the words, my brain shuts down and I feel like I'm reading a completely foreign other language. Mm. And so I'm curious how you make sense of the scripture, because from the first essay in the book, Mm -hmm. there's like very early on, there's a line from scripture. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I understand this. Mm. Well, I actually didn't understand the scripture, but I understood your explanation so clearly. And it like made it come to life for me. So I'm wondering how you sort of approach translating or like reading into life or breathing story into the actual, you know, text of the Quran itself? Hmm. I think it helps that um, I have sort of like a rudimentary uh, understanding of Arabic. My Arabic is not great. And every time I'm outside an environment where Arabic is being spoken, I just like forget it all. Um, but, uh, But between sort of like having grown up in an Arab country and just like constantly being around Arabic, I understand it enough that when I look at the English translation, I can match it to the Arabic. Um, And I think that really helps, too, because sometimes scripture is translated in these like weird formal ways using like words like thy and, you know, like thine. I I don't even know if I'm saying them right. The thy, thine, is that? Yeah. Yeah, I think Um, that's right. Thou, yeah. Um, which feel really unnecessarily. Why why do people do that? Why is there this formal language that people don't use in their everyday lives when scripture is supposed to be something that is part of your everyday life, um, if you want it to be? 
And so, yeah, I, I guess I just, I don't understand why translations are so inaccessible. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think the combination of being able to look at the Arabic and then also look at the English translation and sort of like merge them uh, really helps me with um, with being able to get a sense of what they're saying. And, and actually maybe because... Um, both the Arabic and the formal English are so weirdly inaccessible. Maybe having to draw my own, mm. um, yeah, my own sort of interpretation uh, from those two texts. Uh, maybe that helps too with the accessibility. Um, but I think, I think scripture is something that's meant to be interpreted by everyone always, all the time, um, and all reading is an act of translation. And so, I believe really deeply that text is meant to be something that we grapple with individually and that stories are sort of like lenses onto ourselves. Um, and it helps to also be a big reader because then I can extend some of my, some of the ways in which I think about literature also to the Quran. And I think all of those things really help me um, feel like it's something that I can own and interpret and think through on my own. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, no, it totally does. I mean, in the book, you talk. there's a part where you talk about um, taking Islam seriously, not only in terms of ritual, but also in terms of text and spirituality and then centuries of classical interpretations. And and that really, I don't know, that just stuck out to me because I think my own personal experience with religion is so much about the ritual mm. of it and less about sort of the spirituality and also the relationship to religion like through time and mm. through through interpretations is sort of how I read that is like part of your relationship mm. to religion is that you're tied to previous generations and the way that they interpreted the text and what you can bring to it and sort of like a communal translation. Mm. Um, what do you feel like that part of, of your religious experience gives to you or brings to you that maybe people don't understand or don't think about or maybe take for granted? Hmm. So I actually like, so the ritual and the rules come pretty easily to me. And maybe that's very Capricorn of me. Um, <laughs> I love this. <laughs> but uh, I actually don't know very much about astrology, but um, all of my friends are gay. And so, of course, I know everything about astrology. I don't osmosis. know a lot either, but I live in L.A. And so oh, same thing. Like I've learned a lot in the 10 years. Yeah. yeah. But I my, I have twins and they're Capricorns. And, I, oh. and my father was also a Capricorn. And I don't know anything about Capricorns, except for that I have lived with Capricorns the majority <laughs> of my life. But I couldn't tell you a thing about a Capricorn, except for I think that you all are very regimented and like go-gettery people. That's what everyone tells me. That's what everyone tells me, too. Um, <laughs> and then sometimes I tell people I'm a quadruple Capricorn which I don't think is a thing but um don't tell any of my friends okay, okay. um <laughs> but um so so actually rules and rituals come pretty easily to me um I I actually find it like kind of soothing to follow um to, to to follow ritual um and routine um in some ways and interestingly I think the hardest part of religion for me is the spirituality and the um and just sort of like feeling um mm. and I think the combination of sort of like ritual and also sort of like the fact that like other people have put so much effort into religion by just like studying it and thinking through it and like you know asking totally um asking a lot of questions that are existential and um and deep and also like really shallow like how do you you know um how do you wash up before you pray? Like, you know, um, I think the both right. the I think the minutia and the sort of like deep, richer questions um, really speak to me about religion, um, mm -hmm. and they create their own sort of spirituality in some ways. Um, and then the final part of that to me um, is the idea of sort of like justice and like living justice. And to me, religion works best when it is towards justice. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last 
three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Okay, we're back. You were just talking about justice. And I want to ask you a little bit about, you know, your embrace of religion, because I know for so many people who are queer, there is a a struggle because in a lot of scripture, you know, there are things that you could cite that Mm -hmm. that would say that your existence is a sin or, or whatever, what have you. And I'm wondering, because I have so many friends from Catholic school and and Mm. my life who, you know, were adamant, like I was raised Catholic. I don't fuck with these people. The Bible says this or whatever. And I know that there are there are Muslims who feel similarly about the Quran and there are Jewish people who feel similarly about the mm-hmm. Torah. And so I'm wondering, how did you find a way to embrace religion when it's when it's been alienating for so many other people? And what was that process or discipline that you had to find? What was that like for you? That's a really good question. I think that there are so many difficult things about religion, Um, you know, like being raised as a girl, um, for example, um, and then reading the Quran and like reading some translations and being like, oh my God, this like sounds terrible. This is so like anti-feminist and so misogynistic. Um, Or I think the fact that there were so many difficult things uh, made it feel like, queerness or like the the homophobia that um that you sometimes see in religious spaces or in like texts um it it felt like an extension of that in some ways um I see and to me I guess like I guess like I live a life that is so complicated and and messy to begin with like there's so many things that I live that um I have to sort of like not reconcile, but I have to like contend with on a daily basis. Like, for example, like I live in the US and pay taxes towards, um, you know, that that essentially go towards really unjust wars and occupations. Like these are things that I contend with on a daily basis. Um, And so to me, it feels, it doesn't feel foreign to contend with the patriarchy um, in translations of the Quran or the homophobia um, because, I don't know, life is complicated and messy. And to me... um, sometimes sometimes you have to take what works for you and um and fight against the parts that don't yeah yeah that, i mean yeah, yeah no that's a such a great answer it's sort of a it's sort of an obnoxious question in the sense that like you know no one asks straight people how they can be religious or whatever right. You know, like, and and I understand that that's sort of like the stickiness of that question. But on the flip side, I I do I think it's really interesting it, for, of what you said, and also important to talk about it simply because I mm-hmm. know there are so many people who feel like so many queer people who feel alienated by the things they were taught as children, or like or or harmed by those things, right? And, 
and um, you know again like you were saying like women too and and people who you know I mean it's not simply people who are queer who feel that way about right. religion of course but just that there is this that the choices that you've made to remain you know in the Muslim culture and like to remain a practicing Muslim is something that I find really admirable because I think in the book you do a great job of sort of presenting the complications and also kind of finding ways to, I don't know if this is the right word, but like queer the religion, right? Mm. Like there's this whole section about the non-binary nature of Allah, mm-hmm. which I found to be really interesting. And and I found it to, again, like I said before, what you write about the figures in the book and also what you write about your life make both things make so much sense. Like they come together so beautifully in a way that I was like, wow, I'd never considered that. And that's, mm-hmm. that's fantastic. Like, I'm so happy I read this because I feel like I'm, I'm understanding a point of view that had had never occurred to me or I'd never thought seriously about. So it's not really a question, but I do sort of feel a little bit of like, I need to justify asking the question because I know that right. the question inherently is fucked up and like, sort of a rude question. But I also think that the book itself does speak to that in a much more nuanced and interesting way than a two-minute answer ever could. Yeah. And I mean, like, to me, um, I think I think that the point of religion is for us to put effort into the ways that we live um, instead mm-hmm. of uh, instead of living a life that's sort of like unthinking and um, and uh, just going with the flow. And Again, like this doesn't have to be through religion. Like a lot of people experience that through like a daily gratitude practice or meditation or um, or or like organizing and fighting for justice. Um, but I do think that some of the complications and the messiness um, allow us, allow me at least to put effort into the way that I practice. Um, they've definitely made me delve deeper into um, various texts and verses that I find problematic or that I'm angry at. And so, um, yeah, I, I really, I, I see the, the complications and the messes not as something to be, um, I guess like shied away from, but something Mm -hmm. to embrace. And again, like not to judge people who do find it really hard that um, there is uh, all of this sort of like homophobia um, and, you know, misogyny. Um, But uh, for me, it's just, it's definitely been something that has enhanced um, practice for me and the practice of religion and also just really um, brought a lot to the way that I live my life and how I want to live my life. There's a, there's a one, my, I, I'll just tell you my favorite essay in the book or my favorite chapter is the Yusuf one. Mm. Um, for people who, who know the Bible, it's, it's Joseph. You might, you might know his Technicolor dream coat. I certainly do. I have a theater background and I was in that <laughs> show as a child. And so I've already felt a connection to that story because I I know it, you know, pretty mm-hmm. as well as you can from an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. And I I just that essay you talk about you know really delving into the complications and the messiness of these stories. And there's a thing I don't I don't think this is a spoiler, but there's a thing you sort of talk about which is this like desire to please other mm-hmm. people because of you know y- your your identities and like mm-hmm. to make yourself useful and i don't know i just that essay really like that was one where i was like yeah no i fuck with this book really hard <laughs> like it just really like i was i was enjoying myself the whole way obviously but i got there and i was like yeah and then like from there on out just the whole thing i was like this is really like something substantial um do you have a favorite i know they're all your i know they're all your children but do you have a favorite um essay in in the book for you oh um they're all there are all my babies um (laughs) i think um i think one of the ones that i like the most is the one on Noor, which who's also known as Noah, and the fact that he's asked by God to make this ark in the middle of the desert, uh, which is mm. like totally an exercise in futility. Um, 
And uh, and so I, I draw parallels between that and what it's like dating as a queer Muslim um, hijab wearing person in New York. And I really enjoyed that one because um, so I, you know, um, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that I had been on a lot of bad dates in my life. <laughs> Including uh, one where you told a librarian that you organize your books by color. And as a person who organizes my books by color, <laughs> I cringed for you. I was like, why are they telling that librarian this? This is not going to go well for anybody. <laughs> yeah, it did not go well. It did not um, go well. <laughs> yes, there there was no second date. Um, yeah. In fact, we bumped into each other um, you know, <laughs> years later at a, at a friend's thing and just like just totally ignored each other and pretended that was we the had right never. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but sorry, I interrupted. You no, were saying no, 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 no. I was sorry. I was saying that, you know, I've been on a lot of bad dates and it was um it was a really good uh, exercise in um, in reflecting on how much I've grown um, in some ways. And uh, it was also really fun to write something that felt um, funny. Yeah. And it is funny. I mean, that one was really fun. And, you know, we won't t- tell about the whole thing, but I-, I just, I mean, that one's such an important part of your story as well. Let me just ask you this. Is there anything that's not in this book that you wish was? Oh, um, no, I don't think so. Um, yeah. Okay. That's a good answer. Yeah. Sorry. I don't have a good, yeah, no. That's a great answer. Um, and uh, yeah, maybe there'll be a second book with things that will feel missing if they ever do. Yeah, I mean, I, we're recording this before the book has even come out yet. So it's sort of a crazy question to ask someone whose book's like not even in the world yet. But it's a question I always ask. Um, what was the hardest part about writing this book? And then what, if anything, came easily for you? Hmm. So um, I don't I'm not trained as a writer and um, I didn't start writing until really, really late in my life. Um, I think the first essay I ever wrote was in 2014. Um, oh and it kind of. It, it kind of just happened because I was, you know, I would always like tell these stories um, in which I was angry about something. Um, and I was once I, like I was telling my friend uh, a story and she was like, well, you know, like your rage doesn't really do anything if you just like tell stories and then it just sort of like dissipates um, unless you write about it. Like nothing will happen because of the story. And it kind of like blew my mind. Um, so then I started writing and uh, and really like, I, I mean, like I had, again, like I'd always read a lot. And so I feel like I had been teaching myself to write for a very long time. Right. Um, but I really sort of like, uh, thought through, um, and like kind of like studied other people's essays, um, and really like taught myself how to write in certain ways. Um, I think like the parts about, about writing this book that were hard were, um, some of the skills that I just didn't have. Um, so in the past I'd only written, essays that were very much towards a point and that were making a very specific argument. Um, but in writing this, I had to learn how to move through time and mm. how to um, and how to like go back and forth in time without losing my reader. Um, so those were those were things that were hard. Um, I'm I'm really lucky and had you know a bunch of friends that I workshopped a few of the essays with and was just like able to get feedback from people that was really helpful. Um, so. That was definitely hard, but it was also like really fun and challenging to put myself in the shoes of my reader and think through, you know, what are some of the reminders that my reader will need? And then also like what is like what is giving too much like my and just like learning to trust my reader that Mm. my reader will either remember or will like flip back or like doesn't need to be told explicitly X, Y, Z, because I can like really trust them. So those were the things that were hard. In terms of what came easily, like honestly, I think once I started writing and once I had the structure in place, the stories and the parallels came really easily. And I, I wrote I wrote the bulk of this book during the pandemic when the shutdown was happening and I had, you know, suddenly all of this time on my hands. Um, so the writing of it, once I had the structure in place, also came easily because unlike any other time in my life, I suddenly had like, time, mm. um, lots and lots of time to... Uh, really work on this. 
And how did you use that time? How do you like to write? Where are you? How often? Is there music or no? Are you eating snacks? Are there beverages? Are there rituals? Kind of set the scene for how you write. So I read this tweet recently comparing um, writing to having a crush. And that's totally what it's like (laughs) for me. I know it sounds so weird, but I think it's just like totally a thing. Like, you know, you get so obsessed with this idea that it's it's almost like you're living in that world for a little while and it's all you can think about. And, you know, you'll be like showering and sort of like thinking through, um, you know, how something should be structured or uh, or like a story will come to you. Um, so that's that's what writing feels like to me. Mm. Uh, I wish I had a more sort of like disciplined practice where I did it every day or something. But it, no, it's more just sort of like, it's more like having an idea and like feeling like obsessed with it and like having a crush and then letting it sort of like take over my life. Do you have any writing snacks or beverages? Oh, um, I mean, I really, really like chocolate and okay. dessert in general. Okay, um, talk about so it. I talk about have, it. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm really into um, things with like chocolate and cookie right now. So there's this chocolate that I'm obsessed with that has cookie crumbles in it. Like just that's mm. delicious. It's like dessert within a dessert. Um, Who makes it? Yeah. Well, I'm, we're very snack friendly on this podcast. Oh. And so I just I need to know what I'm missing out on. And I need to know okay, who okay, makes okay. this chocolate with cookies in it. It's called uh, Tony's Chocolate Lonely, and it's their chocolate caramel cookie bar. Okay, thank you. So good. So good. You can't go wrong. I, I love this for us. So you said that you have, you know, this whole other job career. How do you make time to balance that and this other writing career? Um, sometimes I sneak away at work. Good for you. Uh, Good for and you. Correct find answer. a conference room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and set a timer for half an hour. And yeah, just write. Um, I also do a lot of early morning writing um, uh, just before work starts um, when, you know, it's that sort of like, you know, that, that like, those few hours in the day where it feels like no one else is awake because mm-hmm. just because like everyone else is doing their whole like, you know, breakfast, shower, whatever yeah. routine. Um, but I really like that time of the day. And then um, I try to sneak in uh, time here and there. I used to be really into um, going to a coffee shop on Saturday at 7 a.m. And I don't actually drink coffee. So I would get like a decaf mocha uh, because coffee just like stimulates me so much. That oh, right. That's in the book. You talk yeah. about that in the book. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Is that a Capricorn thing? That feels like a Capricorn I don't know. Thing. I don't drink um, coffee either, but I think coffee tastes like socks. So for me, I just oh. I like tea, but it's not about caffeine. I just hate coffee. Mm. Yeah, I just don't like the way that hot liquids feel in my throat. Interesting. I'm as I'm sipping yeah. on a very hot tea right now. I I, mm. I love a hot liquid. <laughs> so I would I would go to a coffee shop and get my little decaf mocha at seven a.m. and like all the baristas would be like, "What the fuck?" Yeah. Um, and I would like sit and write for an hour or two before it felt like everyone woke up. Yeah, I love that. I've, there's There have been a few people who have talked about that that time of day where it feels like mm. no one else is awake or like no one else is working. And it's like such a good time for them. And, you know, some people have talked about, you know, immediately getting up, going straight into the office, doing nothing, drinking nothing, eating mm. nothing, touching their phone never until they've written. And But this, this morning thing does definitely, you know, early morning definitely comes up on this show. It's like a good time for writing. What's a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? Embarrass. Oh, that's so one many, of my words. Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. So <laughs> many like R's, so many S's, like, or like try embarrasses. Like, what? Yeah, like, embarrassed. How are you supposed to do yeah, that? It, that? Yeah. It's, embarrassment. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's all impossible. And they're like, they're slightly different, I feel like. I don't know. I, yeah. I'm just like, just I just type in a few letters, wait for the red line, and then <laughs> click. I'm like, that. you know what I'm talking about. Just I do it. it. <laughs> okay, I have another one. Okay, are yeah. you ready? Yes. Acknowledgement. That's another one of oh, mine. So hard. Oh my Wait, gosh, really? we have the same. Can you do recommendation? 
Oh, wow. No. That's impossible oh God, for me. That's a hu- yeah. We have wow. consonant issues. So there are people who oh. have vowel issues and they can't spell yeah. words like restaurant. I can spell restaurant. Yeah. No problem. Tomorrow is also a word that I feel like vowel people have an issue with. Mm. But we have all the consonant issues. I've discovered this is I, a yeah, lie. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> I can see that. Like February. February is so easy to spell. Yes. The I have, vowels are fine. Yeah. Yes. February is a nothing. People who get who mess up February, I'm like, what are you? You can't spell anything. <laughs> Thing. And then I'm over here. I can't spell any words that have mo- multiple consonants. I'm just like, I don't know. Can't do it. Um, um, yeah. English is my second language. So I'm always like ESL card. Oh, see, I don't have that. I just can't spell very well. <laughs> um, this is a horrible very unfair, mean question to ask a person whose Mm. book is coming out and is not out at the time of recording. But I'm going to ask because sometimes people have an answer. What comes next for you? Oh, um, so I, um, I want to write fiction next. Um, I am, I'm sort of like in the very early stages of, uh, writing a book about um, that's a, that delves a little deeper into the place where I grew up um, and I want to structure it around sort of like creative resistance and the ways in which um, women and gender nonconforming folks and people who are struggling still find ways to um live beautifully and resist, um, even in places where it seems impossible. I know that sounds like really vague, but, um, That's okay. I'm, I'm still in the crush stages, you know? Okay. Yeah. Can I ask you about why you don't name the place where you grew up? I mean, you're, you're one person of so many. Is that something that you feel like it like gives you away or is that something that you just don't want to be associated with your work? No, it is something that gives me away. I, I, I think, yeah, the okay. combination of the place where I was born and where I grew up. Got it. Um, yeah, I think that combination gives me away, um, especially since I've written about both of those things um, using my real life persona. I see. Um, so I decided not to name either of those. Look at that healthy boundaries. Yeah. No, I just was wondering yeah. because I was thinking like a country like there's so many people, right? So I was like, well, I wonder if there's like something, you know, inherently specific, but it makes sense that if you've written about it um, using yeah. your real life name, that then there's like a way to connect you. But I, I assumed there was a reason. I just was curious. For people who love Hijab Butch Blues, your book, what other books would you recommend to them that are maybe in conversation with what you're doing in your book? Um, so right now I'm reading uh, Bushra Rahman's Roses in the Mouth of Lions. And I think it's a really, really beautiful book because it talks about growing up as this young woman in um, New York. Uh, and it writes, a, she, Bushra writes beautifully about queerness and Muslimness. Um, and I think it's a really cool book to be in conversation with mine, especially since hers came out a few months ago. Um, so I'm really excited for people to read those both together. What do you hope folks will keep in mind as they're reading your book? I, I really hope that people will come away from this book with a sense of just embracing uh, mess and how messiness can be generative. Mm. Um, And then the other thing that I really hope that people take from this book um, is that love is expansive and uh, and can take so many different forms, including but not limited to um, romantic. Um, It can take the form of sort of like chosen family and community. And um, those are all things that are difficult to build and to sustain, but ultimately worth it in the end. We didn't even talk about that part of your book about about the your friends, but I love mm. your friends. You have so many wonderful friends in this book, so many people that you kind of touch on here and there that I was like, gosh, I would love a friend like that. They sound fantastic. And your friends like challenge you and inspire you and just the way that you wrote about them. I feel like if when, when they read the book, they'll be like, wow, that's really nice. Lamia loves me. I hope they come away with that, too. I, I I mean, I don't know. I, I'm not them, so I don't know. But I feel like how could they not? It's just it just seems like you've created such a beautiful community for yourself in this book. And I think that 
um, we, you know, we talked a little bit about justice. We talked, you know, a little bit about about the feminist sort of lens through which you see the world, but also this communal, this community aspect of your story, which I think is like so hugely important for religion. Like there is no religion without mm. some sense of community. And I think you really capture that um, beautifully in this book, too, as sort of a <laughs> thing to just tack on to the end, which I should have talked about earlier because it did really, really stick out to me. Um, like from your queer mentor who just seems mm. great. And like I and the, at the the last chapter when you all are hiking and playing your games and talking shit to each other, just like sounds like a, a good place to be thinking and, and creating and living. So I don't know. I loved that. Yeah. Um, everyone should have a queer life mentor in their lives. <laughs> yeah. I, can I borrow yours? Or <laughs> Absolutely. Mine really changed my life in so many ways. Yeah. And I love how it just like came about. It was like, okay, you're going to be this for me. Thank you. And they were like, okay, cool. Yeah. We're here. We're doing this. Um, yeah. So my last question for you is, if you could have one person, dead or alive, read this book, who would you want it to be? Oh, my God. I wanted I would want it to be Leslie Feinberg um, because... I don't know uh, who that so, is. Um, so Leslie Feinberg wrote Stone Butch Blues, okay. and that's where the title comes from. Um, and Leslie was really this... Uh, this like incredible queer and trans labor organizer slash person in the world. Um, and just like, I don't know, Le Leslie wrote this book that was just deeply beautiful and loving and intersectional and um, deeply um, empathetic and just like had a lot of solidarity with uh, a lot of people um, who were similar and different. And so my the title of my book borrows from that um, because some of those are things that I wanted to do in this book. Um, I wanted to write a book that felt deeply intersectional um, and that shows that showed the connectedness of various struggles. Um, and so if Leslie was alive, I really wish that, um, yeah, they would be the person that I would want to read this book. I love that answer. And now I want to read that book. Lamia, thank you so much for being here. Everyone, you can get Lamia's book, Hijab Butch Blues, out in the world now. You can get it wherever you get your books. Um, it comes with a ringing endorsement from me. I think people who like this show will really, really, really like this book. So Lamia, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Lamia for being my guest. I'd also like to say a quick thank you to Andrea Pura for helping to make this conversation possible. Don't forget our February book club selection is The Roundhouse by Louise Erdrich, which we will be discussing on Wednesday, February 22nd with Mina Kimes. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the stacks back. Make sure you're subscribed to the stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from the stacks, follow us on social media at the stacks pod on Instagram and at the stacks pod underscore on Twitter and check out our website, the This episode of the stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 